Podcast. We've begun studying Ecclesiastes, which is one of the most unique and intriguing books in the Bible. King Solomon is reflecting on some of his backsliding years, and he's going to try to convince you to live with an eternal perspective by proving to you how meaningless life is without God at the center. Now let's join Pastor Ross as we're reminded to look to Jesus for our joy and purpose in life. Good evening again. Let's get started. We are closing in on the last portion of the book of Ecclesiastes here in chapter 9 now, so we look forward to that. And uh, let's ask the Lord for his help. Now, Heavenly Father, we have just heard the words on Sunday, apart from you, Jesus, we cannot do anything. So we ask, Father, that we would firmly abide in you, the vine, and that you would, in your nearness, impart to us the revelation tonight from your word that makes us alive, that keeps us blessed and on the straight and narrow path. Many of us need course corrections tonight. We need comfort and courage. We need forgiveness, a spirit of repentance that your kindness provides. And so we look to you for all of these things through the power of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I came across a funny Peanuts comic strip uh, that features good old Charlie Brown in one of his funky moods, and I I think that's all the kind of moods he had. But here, here, it says here he's sitting up in bed, and when I'm lying in my bed, I think about life, and I think about death, and neither one particularly appeals to me. (laughs) Uh, You could leave that up for a minute or two, uh, because I think he's kind of captured uh, the current mindset of our great King Solomon, the preacher, or the Ecclesiastes, which means preacher from a Latin-based word for preacher or teacher, uh, who's in a funky mood himself. I I mean, we know why uh, 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us that he did what the Lord told him not to do. And when you do what the Lord told you not to do, don't hope for a lot of sunshine. Uh, He's kind of stuck in the doldrums, as we say. He's kind of like Charlie Brown. You know, Charlie Brown will, he builds a sandcastle, right? And then, of course, the waves come in, wash it away, and he'll say what? Good grief. And then he says, uh, there's a lesson in here somewhere, but I don't know what it is. That's what he'd always say, because life to Charlie Brown is an enigma. It's a puzzle. It's a mystery. And poor Solomon, he had the answers. He wrote the book of Proverbs, not by himself, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. But now as he's wandered, and as what does it say? It says, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. He worshipped at idols and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God so he has a diminished devotion to God and when you have a diminished devotion to God you'll have a diminished view of life you'll have diminished enjoyment and pleasure because 
you're not abiding in the vine. And he is the root. And in God, we move and live and have our being. So if you're distant from the one who gives you life, what kind of quality of life can you ever hope to have? And so uh, with that, um, fortunately, Solomon kept a journal of his backslidden years. And really, it's a tract. It's, a, it's him sharing his testimony. And I like to give a little context in case you haven't been with us for the eight chapters. Right? He's, he's writing about his search uh, for meaning and joy in a life under the sun, which he calls uh, just so uh, frustrating and futile and nothing new. He calls life chasing after the wind. You, you work hard. <laughs> life is hard. And then you die. What's up with that? You know, and so uh, he's trying to say, I think the Holy Spirit has anointed his backsliddenness in this, his um, preaching about it as don't waste your life. Don't waste any seconds. You have such a valuable life. Every moment counts. And you don't know if tonight's your last night. And that's what he's going to talk about tonight. Uh, Again, this is his theme. You know, uh, before we dive in, I think just quickly too much he has too much of God to be happy in the world and he has too much of the world in his heart to be happy with God it's a terrible thing to walk the fence with God to try to kind of just be saved enough to make it to heaven you will (laughs) burn out you will be miserable You, you will not be who God created you to be and so with that he's saying Don't let this happen to you, or you may be sharing Solomon's sad sentiments. And here we go with some of those sad sentiments again here in chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who don't. As it is with a good man, so with the sinner, as it is with those who take oaths, with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes everyone. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there's madness in their hearts while they live, and then afterward they join the dead. Anyone who's among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy, everything about them and their little lives have long since vanished. Never again will they have part in anything that happens under the sun. So, uh, didn't I tell you? (laughs) You know, you might as well say, good grief. (laughs) You you, you know, good grief. Now, uh, you'll be happy to know that this, uh, there's a resounding agreement among scholars that this chapter is the most pessimistic chapter in all of Ecclesiastes and perhaps in the Bible. But let me say this for the Christian who has the gospel. It is the brightest because nothing makes the heart leap for joy as the backdrop of a reality 
the darkest night, the blackest hell, the empty, the grave, the fear of death, condemnation. Bring it on, because that's what drove me and you to the gospel and to the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we see, yeah, we agree wholeheartedly. Those are the things that drove us to our knees to surrender our hearts to the living God. This is our testimony to the psalm, and this is how we found it, you know. And so he just has a way of painting it so, well, it's the word of God. So he can paint it so intensely Grab your heart. And one person said, Solomon's morbid obsession with the reality of death is a clarion call to all sinners to run into the arms of Jesus, our Savior. I was talking to somebody. I said, hey, I don't think I know you. He said, no, no, it's my first night tonight. And I said, Patrick. He said, Patrick. And I said, Patrick, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's Ecclesiastes chapter 9. He goes, it's my favorite book. You know, because of this idea that no you're not crazy life doesn't make sense men's hearts are filled with wickedness and madness it's not just you the world is upside down and uh, Christ is coming to reverse that amen so let's jump in here the first point Uh, he is now giving advice his advice is yeah the, the, the world's messed up life is broken Your heart has got a lot of issues, but here's the way to behave, to make life better, to mitigate the futility and frustration, to soften that a bit. If you do these things, you'll be happier. So the first point here that he has four suggestions tonight. Uh, uh, The first one is number your days. Number your days. Live with an eternal perspective. Know that your life is a vapor. And poof, it's gone. And did you live the way you were supposed to live? These kinds of things we're going to talk about now. So the certainty of death, the unavoidable nature of the grave, uh, really for Solomon makes the enjoyment of life apart from God impossible so he's getting older what's up with this death thing well uh, he's getting older now when you're younger you're in your 20s maybe even your 30s it just feels like life is going to go on forever right and then you turn 40 then you turn 50 then you turn 60 and then you're thinking row, row, you know <laughs> you're <laughs> every gray hair is an evangelist that says prepare to meet thy god amen Every single wrinkle is crying out to you, sir, ma'am, are you ready to stand before God? That's the truth of it, too. And so uh, he's got some gray hairs, and he, does, and he has a guilty conscience, and he's not walking close with God. So, of course, he's just like, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. You know, this grim reaper. This, I have a picture for you. This is all, this is all, this is the entire book. You think I'm kidding. Chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. Chapter 3, verse 18 through 20. Chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 15 through 16. Chapter 6, verse 6. Chapter 8, verse 8 here. And in chapter 12, he repeats this refrain. Look. You are going to die, and there is nothing you can do about it. 
Therefore, <laughs> therefore, but it's only, <laughs> it's the wisest people on earth are the ones who live with the reality of facing and not living in some kind of fantasy world, facing the reality that my, I have a certain number of days to play out here, so I have to live with a heart of wisdom. I have to have a savior. I have to have things figured out. I only get one life. And so if you're remembering that this guy is out to get you, Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto men once to face him and have an appointment with the coroner's office, then therefore what kind of person should you be tonight? But everybody in our culture is like pushing it aside, pushing it aside, pushing it aside. And so this is distressing to him. He doesn't have a clean conscience, like he said. He doesn't have the hope that we have. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, it says this, that Jesus, God, he, the word who was God, became flesh and took on a human body for this very reason, that Jesus might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and Free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And so this is the gospel, the gospel. Uh, and uh, you can go back to the verses. I think they get the picture now. So <laughs> we believers, we sing about our Redeemer who's conquered the grave. Uh, Job, it's not just that the Old Testament was kind of obscure about things after the grave. Uh, because Job, Job says, you know, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he'll stand on the earth and that after my body has been destroyed, yet in this very body, my eyes, these eyes and none other will see the face of God, my Redeemer. You, you know, he's an Old Testament guy. And how about King David? Therefore, my heart is glad his father, Solomon's dad. He didn't raise him this way. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave. He says, it's a, you will lift me up. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's dad speaking. I don't know where he was that night at the dinner table, but he, he, he heard it as a young man. But as an older man, he thought he could... Uh, play around with a, a walk on the wild side, and that didn't go. So first he acknowledges here, sorry for that long introduction, he, the lives of righteous and wise are under God's control. And here's what he's saying here in verse 1. But it's hard to know how God is disposed to us, whether God is happy or whether God is angry by the things that happen in our lives. So uh, believers' houses flood when the storms come. Believers' roofs are torn off. Believers uh, divorce. They lose babies. Uh, they go bankrupt. They are victimized, and they are brutally murdered, all the while trusting in God. So he's saying, yes, I know that righteous people are under... <laughs> Hand, the hand of God, but who can tell in, by what comes at you if God loves you or hates you? This is what he's saying. I can't understand by what happens to me in life how God is predisposed toward me. 
Well, that's because he doesn't have the gospel that says we do not measure God's love by what happens to us, but by what happened to Christ on the cross. That's how we judge the heart of God. And that is a heart that is love. He loves us. And we we know better than to uh, judge God by the things that happen in a fallen world. He said, if you disconnect from me, if you sin, you do what's not right. All hell is going to break loose. You're going to die. And then he subjected the entire creation to futility in hope that the futility of life going around and around and around in a hamster wheel would cause us to hope in Christ and soften our hearts so when the gospel came that we would find him. And so he's saying, listen, you cannot use good and bad events uh, as criteria to decide whether God loves or hates you. Uh, your future may be a mix of favorable and unfavorable things. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, and who hasn't said, what have I done to deserve this? Right? But how about when you're happy and God is blessing you? <laughs> right? It's a little bit harder to say, ask the same question, <laughs> what have I done to deserve this? Because you haven't done anything to deserve that either, right? So in Solomon's world, as we move on here, if I do right, I should be blessed. If people do evil, they should be punished. And since that doesn't happen, I'm going to have a temper tantrum. All right? And so that's what he's saying here. Now he moves on to verse two and he says, look, it doesn't matter who you are. And this drives him crazy. Okay. He says, believers who live painstakingly moral lives, evil thugs will kill you for your sneakers. The same destiny awaits the, the, the godly missionary as the, the ungodly thug. He says, churchgoers, atheists, heroic, exemplary men and women of God, and those without a spiritual uh, moral backbone, he calls them wusses. He says they, don't, they lack courage. So this, he says, this is evil. He calls that evil. He just says, I just can't believe that that good people have to die and bad people have to die. Let the bad people die. Why do the good people have to die and go through suffering? And so he he goes on with all of this. Well, (laughs) the answer to this is he says, yes, you'll have a better life if you have wisdom. But what does that matter? Well, it does matter. You know why it matters? Solomon, the same destiny does not await everyone. Oh, yes, we must all die. But then again, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all die. That those who are alive at the coming of the Lord shall be caught up and changed. So not everybody is going to die. But generally speaking, he's right. Every, every human being is appointed once to die, right? But then he says this. And then the gospel says Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he or she was thrown into the lake of fire. Solomon, the same destiny does not await us all for everyone who called on the name of the Lord will never be at the great white throne. That's not their destiny because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
And if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you reign and rule forever with Christ. And so, yeah, no. I mean, if you have, a, if you have this distant, vague, foggy relationship with God, you may think, you know, everybody's the same. We all have to die. And then it's kind of just like that. But no, our destinies are very different. So the evil under the sun, we all must die. The goodness that descended from heaven, Christ died for us that whoever believes in him would live. So Solomon's, you know, in a fog. And so, uh, by the way, he says in verse 3, while humans are alive, they're full of evil and they're crazy as a loon. All right. Now listen. Now that's what he says. He says their hearts and minds are filled with madness. The word means insanity. Now crazy as a loon. A loon is an aquatic seabird, and the and 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 we get that saying because they have a cackle or a call that sounds like an insane person laughing. All right, it goes something like this. Okay, so, so listen. Hearts full of madness, crazy as a loon. Men throwing away their careers, their marriages, their families for a moment's thrill. Women who tear down their own homes with their own hands. Proverbs 14.1. By our own folly, we wreck our lives and then our hearts rage against God. We blame everybody except ourselves. That's crazy as a loon. Uh, exalt ourselves and despise everybody else. Think we're the most important person in the room. We do terrible things and then justify ourselves. We judge others for doing the very same things that we do. That's crazy. How about this? I know I shouldn't do X, Y, and Z, and then I do them. That's, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> All right? If you say... This is the right way to do life, and then you don't do it. What's wrong with you? There's something not connecting, and that's what he's saying. People are broken. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is sick beyond cure. Who can understand it? We're sitting in, uh, not in my notes as usual, but we're sitting having coffee of Freestone with those sticky buns, you know, that play. Oh, please, go there. Just take a right at Freestone and the first bakery on your left. And we're sitting there and a woman sat down in front of us and there was a whole long table. And she sat down. Barb wasn't there yet. She was at the store next door and I'm sitting there. And she sat down right in front of me. And, and, and it's like, okay, God, I'm ready and I'm praying. And, you know, she's talking about, uh, you know, what a good person she is. I'm asking her about church, and oh no, she's got the spirit of this and the spirit of that, and I got to share the gospel with her, but I forgot totally what the point is here. <laughs> Dave, where was I? Come on, come on. What? Marianne, where are you now when I need you? Sticky buns, that's helpful. <laughs> Something made me think of her. What was my spiritual point, people? Yeah, crazy as a loon. Well, she's crazy as a loon. Let's move on. 
I'll think of it as soon as I dive back in. And so, yeah, judging things, crazy saloon. Oh, the heart is deceitful. She said, I judge everything by how I feel in my heart. And I said, sometimes your heart can be deceitful. And she interrupted me and said, I know the difference in my heart between spiritual deception and the pureness of my heart. Crazy saloon. That's that's dangerous. I was trying to say danger, danger. Will Robinson, danger. Uh, but she got up and scurried off. All right. I'm so glad you were patient. I needed to get that point there. That would have bugged me and Barb because I would have asked her for two hours afterwards. All right. So now, crazy saloon. Annie says hearts full. <laughs> I have to admit, that was... <laughs> oh, Jonathan. That was good. Do it again, and I'll come back there. <laughs> Moving on. Hearts full of evil. Now... Need I begin? Now, I'll let the Holy Spirit sum this one up, all right, in Romans chapter 1, because he says, men are in this life full of craziness, and they're also full of evil. And here's what Romans says. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they ought to do what ought not be done, so that they ought not so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, not only do they continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. The word approve there means to recruit. The more the merrier. And so uh, the world exists, he says, of men and women of depraved lives brimming over with evil, stuffed full of madness and insanity, spiritually speaking, and then we join the dead. <laughs> Verse 4, so yikes, he says, good grief. Even a living dog, now the dogs are not not like our wonderful dogs. When they talk about dogs in the Bible, they mean uh, flea-infested, disease-carrying, mangy uh, scavengers. Even a dead dog like that is better off than the noblest of animals and beasts, the lion, right? And who is found dead on the African savanna. Um, so I'll ask somebody at a coffee shop, you know, how's it going? And he'll say, uh, 
any day above ground is a good day, right? And because, you know, I'm alive is the answer. And in the world, this is exactly what he's saying without an eternal perspective, right? I've still got life. I've still got hope. Now, as bad as life is, Solomon suggests, it's better to be alive than six feet under, right? So because he's, even though he believes that we will, we will be judged in the future. So he believes in an afterlife, but it's all kind of a fog to him. So he says, um, the living can still, here's what verse five means. Death is the end of all opportunity in this life. He's, he does not believe in oblivion. He might have his struggles but he does believe that we will all stand before God. He says so in chapter 12, and he has said this before. But he's saying here that death is the end of all opportunity in this life. So listen, the living can still try to figure things out. You can improve your life while you're alive. You can make right choices. You can course correct. You can save the day. You can use wisdom. As messed up as life is and as messed up as you are, you're still in the game. That's the point here. So when he says the dead know nothing, it does not mean a state of unconsciousness like some of the pseudo-Christian cults take this verse and they say, see, in the grave, there's nothing. No, no, here's what he's saying. He's saying you are divorced from life that's going on without you on the planet because you're dead and you're not here anymore so your little life of love and hate and jealousies and gossiping and strivings and all the things that made up your life your part in life in this depraved crazy world is over so it's one writer it's not that they don't know anything it's that what they now know is a reality that's permanently severed from the reality of the life in the here and now, so here's what he's saying. The dead, once you're dead, you can't come back and do or undo. So if you've got some doing and undoing to do, you need to do it when? Tonight. Now, not tomorrow, because you're not. And this is his point. He's going to go on to say, you know, it, you don't know. You don't know if you have tomorrow. Well, people do that. So, and by the way, oh, yeah, the dead do know a lot. Oh, they know a lot. They don't know nothing. They know a lot. Luke chapter 16, we've got two dead guys that are still talking because Jesus is telling the story about what they said and what they felt and what they knew after they died. Luke chapter 16, read it for yourself tonight. Lazarus, his name means God is my helper. And some rich dude didn't know the Lord. They both died. Lazarus is in paradise. He knows something. He knows he's Lazarus. He knows he's in being comforted. He knows he's safe. How about the guy who perished? He speaks. He knows something. He knows, A, he's in torment, his word. B, I'm in torment in this flame. He knows. He knows something. The dead know something. He knows he's thirsty. I would like a drop of water, not a cup of water, just a drop just on my tongue. He knows Lazarus. 
He recognizes, so he has memory. He knows who he is. He knows how he used to be. He knows that he has five brothers at home who are unbelievers who are headed to the same place of agony. And he knows, because he's dead, and he knows something, Solomon. He knows that they're going to end up in the same place. So he says, send Lazarus to my father's house to warn my brothers because they're like me and they're going to end up in this place. Nice guy. That's a nice thing to say. But he's in hell and he's not getting out. And he knows that. So the dead know a lot. And it's important for you to know that story because Jesus told that story to sober people up. That life is more important than anybody takes it as. And God is more holy. And our choices are more important than anybody will ever realize until the cord is severed and we find out, whoa, that life that I just lived mattered. And now I stand before God and I'll give an account of things done in my body, both good and bad. Wow. That's an amazing thing. So the dead know things, Solomon. They know, they know a lot. They just don't know in the sense of what's going on here necessarily, right? 7 through 10, he goes on. And he says, so, therefore, here we're back to this, you know, enjoy the simple pleasures while you can. Go eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it's now that God favors, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white, always anoint your head with oil, enjoy life with your wife. Please stop bickering about stupid things. Sorry. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. Remember? Hello, I do. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. <laughs> For this is your lot in life and your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you're going, there is neither work nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Well, let's talk about that happy thought. <laughs> so advice, uh, word of advice number two, seize the joy, maximize the good, make the most of every opportunity. Now, as turbulent and mixed up and meaningless from his point of view that this life in a fallen world can be, try to enjoy the ride. Try to enjoy the ride. And I, I've told you before, because this comes up a lot, I really like this advice. I really think it's good advice. There's a lot more to it. But verse 7, he says, go. That word means get up, live, start living already. Death is coming, death is coming. Get busy. What, what do you got to do? What are you waiting for? You don't know, he's, he's going to say. Uh, you don't know. Uh, so I like that he's saying, enjoy your blessings, man. He's not saying, uh, talking to the jet set. He's not um, talking to uh, go to exotic places and spend more than you make and to 
to find enjoyment. He's saying there's enjoyment that God gives every common person, common experiences. When he says in verse 8, dress in white and anoint yourself, he's saying treat each day like it's a special occasion. You know, when you fix yourself up and dress nicely, you know, he's saying, he's saying, make that your attitude about every day because it may be your last day. Enjoy God's blessing. So he starts with table fellowship again. He's really into the food and I don't blame him. Because what, I mean, God made food delicious, right? He even grew the spices for us. Come on. And then he made tongues that are activated. I'm already salivating because I'm thinking about food, right? <laughs> he's, he's designed us with noses that can smell the aromas and taste buds and all of this. No, all right. <laughs> How could you say no to that, first of all? He says, enjoy food. But more than that, enjoy the next one here. Enjoy the table fellowship, your family. Lingering, leisure times. Now, all of you are saying, you don't know my situation. Stop that nonsense. Stop it, because you will never get out of that rut. Make the best with what you, you, what you find yourself in. Well, you don't understand. I got left and I'm alone and I don't have a family. Well, go down to the Redwood Gospel Mission. Start getting creative. Start to find, you know what? I'm going to make the best out of my broken life that I can possibly do with the hand of God. Amen. Well, you don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. I, I, yes, I do, first of all. <laughs> Ask yourself this. What is it like to be married to you? Just ask yourself that. Look in the mirror and say, what is it like to be married to me? Right? And if you're thinking, quite a blessing, let me tell you the truth. Okay, so we got a family here happy. You know, next picture. This is what he's saying. Husband, enjoy your wife. Wife, enjoy your husband. I cannot tell you in 40 years of being a Christian and being in ministry how many marriages have been wasted over nonsense, over a selfish ambition, over me, myself, and I. I'm not getting what I need. Stop it. One of you is going to die. One of you is going to get a lump. I told one... one, one, uh, One couple, I was undergoing, 15 years ago, I was undergoing chemotherapy for cancer. And so I said, you guys can come over to my house, but I am too sick to go out. So they came over. I'm marriage counseling them, right? They came over. I'm laying on the couch, and they're sitting across from me. I'm laying on a couch sick, right? And they're bickering. They're bickering over stuff like, uh, you know, listen, I've told them a thousand times about you know, the bread goes in the drawer, not in the refrigerator. I don't like cold bread. <laughs> I like, listen, listen, people. You are going to feel a lump. You're going to feel a lump. Trust me, it happens. Or you're going to get a phone call about a car accident. 
and suddenly you're not going to care where anyone puts the bread. If there's bread in the house, you're not going to care. That person's going to disappear and you're going to cry over every stupid thing you ever said. I think you get it. Love your husband, love your wife, have friends, have fun, be a friend. Next slide. Look at how happy they are. All right, then he says, enjoy your work. You want to see someone enjoying their work? Look at him. (laughs) Carlin, are you like that every morning? (laughs) I'm going to check tomorrow morning. Look at that. He's just so glad to crunch those numbers. For, of course, he's making $150,000, or so it appears. Okay, next one. You know, enjoy your work. Just enjoy your work. Turn it into ministry opportunities. Witness for Christ. Thank you for all of those pictures. That's what he's saying. You want to be happy. Uh, you want to be happier Make your changes now, but you better get busy. Stop doing the wrong thing. Be other-centered. Be more generous. Pray more. Memorize scripture. Share the gospel. These these are things that you can do. But when are you going to do them? You keep saying you're going to do them. I'm going to stop complaining so much. When? (laughs) I'm complaining right now about you complaining. You know, just... Seize the day, seize whatever you can, because life slips away just like hourglass sand. Seize the day, pray for grace from God's hand, then nothing will stand in your way. Seize the day, because verses 11 and 12. I have seen something else under the sun I want to talk to you about. (laughs) The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. I really love Ecclesiastes. I really do. So... Uh, advice number three, factor in random upsets in or against your favor. So true, that mere possession of being, uh, having speed or strength or wisdom or cleverness or skill or money doesn't in itself guarantee success. And we know this, unless the Lord builds a house, we know this is true. But there's this vulnerability to life and randomness that no matter, <laughs> no matter how much wisdom you have or, or skill, it doesn't guarantee success, as I said. So um, here's the uncertainty and the inequity, the uh, unfairness of life. So he says, number one, first example, the race is not always won by the fastest athlete or the best conditioned runner or the one who trained the hardest because you can trip on your shoelace, another runner steps into your lane, you know, you, you look back one too many times or you get the flu the morning of the race. You've got to understand 
that just because you're a really good runner doesn't mean that the underdog isn't going to win. He says, it's not always the stronger opponent that wins the fight. So there's pride, there's uh, error, there's miscalculation, there's overconfidence. Furthermore, he says, there's a lot of hardworking, well-educated people who struggle financially and fall on hard times through no fault of their own. Uh, There's a turn in the economy. uh, The company is downsizing. uh, There's random and unforeseen circumstances that negate the advantage that you thought you had. So you need to seize the day because of the randomness of life. You don't know what's coming. And you can't just say that that paycheck that you're used to is always going to be there. Because you, you just don't know. And he goes on to say, uh, and you have no clue, except if you're on death row, uh, is when your time is up, right? Most people, even when you're terminally ill, you still don't really know when you're going to die. And so he says, listen, it's like fish. They're just swimming along, going for reeds to reeds, looking for stuff to eat. And then all of a sudden... There's a net, and they get entangled, and up they go, gone. One second, they're just happily swimming through the reeds. The next, they're, it's over. And he says, the birds are just flying without a thought, carefree, just flying in the sky until they fly right directly into the path of some buckshot, right? And boom, they're done. And how about you? How about you? You have No clue. That's his point. You don't have a clue. Therefore, the randomness, the the seeming chance of everything. You see, but we know, Romans 8, 28, God is working and causing all things, even the so-called random stuff. We'll get to heaven, and we'll be able to figure out whether or not there's anything such as chance. We'll find that out. But to me, it doesn't matter because whether there is chance and randomness in life and I'm vulnerable to it, he's in charge. He's in control. And he will work it out all for my good. So if it was by chance, praise the Lord. If it wasn't by chance, praise the Lord. It's win-win with God, people. Amen? Amen? All right, let's finish up. All right. I believe this is it. Yes, we're going to put chapter 9... To bed. I also saw under sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Verse 15. Now there lived in that city a, this poor man, but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, Well, wisdom is better than strength, but the poor man's wisdom is despised. And his words are no longer heeded. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So he's constantly saying, you know, there's some really good things about life, but, you know, there's some really bad things too. And they seem to kind of neutralize each other, which makes him crazy. So... Uh, the fourth and last a bit of advice is be wise, but don't expect the world to applaud. 
All right, so. Seize the day with wisdom because life is so unpredictable. Even when you live wisely, you can expect some curveballs. So even in his downer mood, he's saying he never stops advocating wisdom. He always says wisdom's the way to go. Oh, you'll do better with wisdom. So he says, it reminds me of a story, okay? He says, I know this little tiny town. Think of a place like uh, Vernon, California. Vernon has 112 people. It's down near Los Angeles. So I know this little tiny town. This is from his experience. He's telling you a story. He says, this teeny little place, by random chance, some king got his eye on the property there, and he wanted it for himself, and they didn't want to give it to him, so he built this siege works ramp up against their tiny little wall, you know, this big army, this little tiny town, right? And so, but wait, you know, this total nobody, this ordinary guy, didn't have a lot of money, nobody knows his name, by chance, randomly had this great idea and outsmarted and uh, outsmarted the, this king and, and uh, you know, won the day. But guess what? His statue's been taken down. His name's missing from the history books. And it's become politically incorrect to talk about him. And so no one even remembers him, who he was, what he did, or the lesson he taught everybody because, you know, we can't talk about those things anymore. So on one hand, he says, the quiet wisdom of one nobody was better than the loud shouts of this powerful, foolish commander. But all it takes is one fool to ruin everything you worked so hard for. So therefore, he's saying, don't be that fool. And... Factor in the impact, factor in the impact in your little world, the terrible consequences of having a fool in the family, in the company, in the church, in the town council, and do something about that, about how you deal with that fool. Because a fool, one fool, can take down the whole place. You gotta think, I'm A, I'm not gonna be that fool. <laughs> and B, I'm gonna deal wisely with the people who interact with me and, and influence the success of my sphere of influence. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, we look to you. We're so thankful, Father, that the gospel saves us from a life of sadness and emptiness, futility and fear, loneliness, and all of these things. Lord, we have a Savior who sticks closer than a brother. Never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for the love of God the healing of our minds, the filling of our hearts with good things, Lord, and our lives with laughter and joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. 
If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.